Luke chapter 19. So Luke chapter 19. And uh, as we continue through our study in Luke this morning, uh, we come to the, the end of the gospel or, or of uh, Luke 19. Pardon me while I get myself organized a little bit here. And uh, look at some familiar passages of scripture. At least one is probably a little bit familiar to us as we we consider. We've come just not so long ago uh, looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and uh, learning some lessons from that. And as we learned and looked at this uh, entry into Jerusalem, as the people praise Jesus and, and celebrate him and, and give him honor, which he is rightly due, we came to look and see that the difference is, and that what we're looking at is, the Jesus that we want is not always the Jesus that we need. Uh, the people wanted a Jesus who would rescue them from the tyranny of Rome and bring his kingdom, but they needed first the Jesus who would suffer and die on a cross. As we come to our passage this morning, which is going to be from verse 39 of Luke 19 through the end, this is how Luke brings the climax of the triumphal entry. So Jesus comes in and he, he rides on the donkey through and the people are singing his praises and, and throwing down their coats and the, the palm leaves. But the triumphal entry of Jesus, as we know, doesn't end with a coronation. Instead, it ends with rejection. And this is what Luke emphasizes for us here in these next couple of, uh, of verses as we go through is what really takes place and how the people respond and what is going to happen as a result. So follow with me in your Bibles as we read from Luke 19 and verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your ears or your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the people, sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's ask God's blessing together as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to, to gather in this way, even though not face to face. We ask, dear God, that the power of your word would continue to have its course in our lives, that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be challenged to be stronger or faithful in our lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Excuse me, just one moment. <clears throat> Here, we see the climax of the triumphal entry as Jesus comes. And it comes, as I said, with this rejection. And as we look at these two events here this morning quickly uh, in our time together, we see two very deep emotions of Jesus. Him responding to circumstances very deeply. The first we see here as he comes into Jerusalem in verse 41 is that he weeps. Then later, as we get to the end, we find him in great anger. These deep shows of emotion tell us something about Jesus, something important, that this, this mission that he's on, this work that he is doing, is not just, it's not just a job. It's not just something he has to do. It's not just hollow and pointless. But rather, what Jesus is here to do, what he's coming to do, is deeply, deeply person. It matters to him. He cares what happens to people. He cares that we understand why he came. He cares that we know who the true God is, not the God of our making. The same is is true today. Right now in in our crises, um, this is true. God cares that we know why he came. He cares for us in all of these these ways. Now, as we see at the beginning here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and it says that he weeps. Please don't misunderstand what it says here. He's not, it's not just uh, crying. This isn't just the, the tear that rolls down his cheek. This, when it says that he wept, this is, this is sobbing. This is uh, what sometimes call ugly crying. The, the eyes are puffy and red and, and the emotion inside is is so deep that you can't help crying. It just comes out. The, the, the lips are, are quivering and the, the moaning. He is, he is ravaged inside by his grief for the people. And it comes out in this desperate crying. Then the second episode we see is Jesus gets deeply angry. He is, he is not full of rage. So what he does is not out of control. He hasn't lost control of himself, but... He is deeply, deeply indignant at the disrespect that is coming toward God. There are some things for us to emulate here. There are some things for us to to learn here and to, to follow and to consider. But we might consider for a moment and take our thoughts in this manner, and that is why do these situations bring such strong reaction to Jesus? Why, when he comes down into Jerusalem, does he see them and cause him such deep sadness that he is weeping? And then why, when he goes into the temple, does it cause him such anger that he needs to cleanse it out and push everything out and, and, and rebuke them for what they have done? I hope we'll learn a few lessons this morning. I've titled the sermon this morning, What Jesus Wants for You. I'm going to take these two things. There's only two points this morning. With these, the first one is Jesus wants you to avoid judgment. And the second of our points as we look at the second is that Jesus wants you to know God. So let's start at the beginning there, looking at this first portion as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, that Jesus wants you to avoid judgment. It begins in verse 42. It says, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your 
peace. Jesus wants you to avoid judgment by knowing peace, by knowing peace. As he speaks here, he is acknowledging that these people are lacking peace. They don't have peace. And that was a great deal uh, a part of why the triumphal entry happened. They were looking for peace. They're looking for, for Jesus to come and rescue them and to give them the kingdom of peace and to rescue them from the tyranny and violence of Rome. So he's recognizing that they lack peace. There's an absence of peace. It's been missing. They are searching for it. Yet while they've been searching for it and while it's been missing from them, it has been in front of them all along. We've known this is true in our society. We've talked about it before, uh, but it's been true in our society for a long time. We're missing peace. And crises reveal truth. And if one thing is, is for sure in our time at the moment with what's going on in our nation and in the world is that peace eludes us. You know, it's interesting in the conversations I've had over the last few weeks, it's amazing how just a few weeks ago, people would say, essentially, people are good at heart. And these same people who have talked to me and told me and they believe essentially people are good at heart. And the last week have all turned and said, people are just basically evil, selfish. Crises reveal the truth of what we really are. Everything we thought that would give us Peace. Everything that we thought would give us strength and confidence and security is disappearing. We're losing those in our life. See, the lack of peace that comes in our body and in our soul that we see in crises like we experience now is a result of our loss of peace with God. This is what makes Jesus so sad. This is what breaks his heart is that their missing peace is not just a matter that they don't feel safe or that they, they need some uh, sort of peace, but that they are missing the genuine peace that he brings. We were created to be in communion with God. But now, because of sin, we are his enemies. We chose as a people and we continue to choose self over God. The Bible calls this sin. It is essentially our rebellion against our creator, against our king. You can read about this in the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and especially Genesis chapter 3. Being at odds with God means the peace that is found in our relationship with God that is fundamental, that, that comes as part of that relationship, is gone. But while they have an absence of peace, and Jesus notes that absence of peace, he is offering peace to them, and he has been. What we're looking for has been there all along. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to make reconciliation between uh, God and, and me and you possible. From the moment that we, as, as human beings, fell into sin, God has been offering peace. He has been offering a way of restoration and moving toward that. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus is continuing that call. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. He described it like this. He says, therefore, having been justified, or that is, having been, me, been made right with God. And that happens by faith, he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having peace with God, that is a restoration of our relationship with God, is what brings the peace of God. It gives access to him through relationship. In Philippians, uh, the letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail, in fact, it, it wouldn't be long after he writes this letter that he will be, be executed. But in Philippians chapter 4, in down verse 6, Paul writes for us this. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then he follows, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can call on him in times of trouble. And when we do, he says that he will guard our hearts and minds. If there's anything that we as the people of God need right now, it is uh, our minds and our hearts to be guarded against the panic and against the trouble that surrounds us. On the night before Jesus would, uh, would be crucified, he says to his disciples in John chapter 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They were about to face the most difficult trial in their life that they had faced to that point. How are they going to deal with the fear? Believe in God. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus wants you to avoid judgment by knowing peace. But also, Jesus wants you to avoid judgment by knowing salvation. Let's roll back a little bit here from what says of our text for a moment and see that his salvation isn't hidden. We'll get to the hidden part in just a moment, but his salvation isn't hidden. The salvation that Jesus offers, the ability to find peace and know the peace of God and peace with God, this restoration of a relationship which draws us out of our sin and into uh, the family of God as we were designed to be and out of judgment and into blessing. This comes, this is the message of the ages. This is the message of Jesus. He said it even just previous in, in Luke chapter 19, as we saw, it says he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save sinners, of which I am chief. Jesus is calling us to know his peace. We've got on one of these posters behind me, Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, verse 28 and verse 29, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The peace that you don't have, Jesus can give. Peace which comes by believing Jesus. Firstly, by believing that he has paid your debt for sin and can make peace with God available. And secondly, by trusting him to provide the peace, to give the peace of God. Cast all your care upon him. He cares for you. But while it is true that his salvation isn't hidden, it is also true, and this is uh, where Jesus is getting at here in these verses, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It is also true that our stubbornness makes us blind. What is our problem? Sin and selfishness blinds us to the truth. 
we choose to reject God's way of peace. And eventually, God uh, offers and offers, and he has throughout the centuries offered and offered and offered salvation to us, and we continue to deliberately and constantly reject. Say, no, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. Eventually, God hides it from us. That is to say that salvation, this offer of peace with God, this offer of peace which can come to our hearts and souls and our eternal life is not an open invitation forever. It is there for a time. It's there to be seen while it's on offer, but as we continue to reject, that will soon disappear from us. And there will come a time when that offer will end entirely. God's salvation isn't on offer forever. God wants us to to know, Jesus wants us to avoid judgment by knowing peace and by seeing salvation. And thirdly, he wants us to avoid judgment by knowing judgment is coming. Verse 43 says, For the days will come upon you when your enemy will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is warning us of judgment. Here, Jesus is warning of an actual judgment. So in AD 70, about 40-ish years from the point Jesus says, this is in AD 70, indeed, Jerusalem will be destroyed, completely razed to the ground and left in ruin. So this judgment is sure to come, and it does indeed come, but that judgment is pointing us to a greater judgment. The rejection of Jesus and his salvation brings utter destruction. We've rebelled against God, and the truth, though it hurts, and we hate to admit it, the truth is because we've rebelled against the king, because we've rebelled against God, we deserve the judgment that is coming our way, so heed his warning. Heed his warning. In John chapter 3, let me begin with a verse which is familiar to many, but in John chapter 3 and verse 16 begins, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is his desire. He wants to save. He's done what is necessary to save, but it goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. See, we're already under judgment. We don't have to do anything to put ourselves. We're already there. And Jesus didn't come for judgment. Not this time. He came to warn us about judgment. He came to provide a way of escape from judgment. Jerusalem didn't heed the warnings. In fact, it's not the first time. Their history is a history of not heeding the warnings of God and paid the price. Judgment came and they weren't ready. Judgment is coming. Are you prepared? We have spent times, many of us have spent times in these last few weeks Preparing for two weeks at home. But have you prepared for eternity? 
Jesus wants you to avoid judgment. Secondly, this morning, and more quickly, as we look at this next state where Jesus cleanses the temple, Jesus wants you to know God. Verse 45 says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. So this is the next day. The triumphal entry has come. Jesus has seen the city and he has wept and he has gone back uh, and now he has come the next day into the temple. Now, as we look here, Jesus wants you to know God, firstly through the gathering of his people. God's people need to gather. He comes here. Jesus comes into the temple that, that next day. And as he comes into the temple, he becomes very angry. He said it's not out of control rage, but it is violent in terms of the way he's turning the tables over and he's clearing the temple. And this isn't the first time he's done it either. John chapter 2 records when it happened at the beginning of his ministry, about, in fact, almost exactly three years earlier. Why is he so angry? Why does he enter into the temple and see what he sees and become so violently angry? Well, there's a few reasons why that is true. But one of the reasons I think that we will consider this morning is that as he walks into the temple and he sees this, one of the things that is true about the temple is that the temple is important for worship. Now, the temple and the church aren't the same thing, but they share a lot of things in common. Both are God's designed places for worship. See, people make a church, not a building. But a people can't be a church if they don't gather. Gathering for worship is essential for Christian life. Hebrews chapter 10, I think these words are particularly relevant to us today. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. If ever there was a time we see the day of God approaching, it's in days like we are in now. See, what we're doing now, this online streaming, isn't ideal. And it must be temporary. Gathering for worship is part of how God matures us and encourages us. Christianity isn't a solitary an isolated form of religion. We need to gather because it is part of our testimony. It is part of what God uses. We, we live together, and in together we live out what we, we believe. We show that we can love, that we can forgive, that we can help, that we can encourage. You can find on our, our website and on our things a, a series we did some time ago called The Most Beautiful Place on Earth, which describes this, the importance of the gathered people of God. God's people need to gather. And just as we see Jesus here, what moves him to anger is his, his love for the gathering of God's people. This is why in John chapter 2, John reminds us, he, they saw this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says that the disciples were reminded of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus had a deep passion for the place of gathered worship. I pray that this time of absence from gathering deepens our love for our church gathered. 
Psalm 42. Uh, we, we sung a song based on it earlier. It was the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, is written and even references uh, the sadness, the longing that David has to gather with the people of God in a time when it was missing. We don't just long for God individually, but as a body. Your first Corinthians chapter three says, do you not know that you and that you is a collective you of a church? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And on another note, I think also with this in mind, I think it's important that we watch the live stream together. It's easy to say, you know, Sunday morning, I can sleep in and enjoy it. I mean, we were a little bit more relaxed here this morning. We had a lot more time. So it's easy to think, you know, I can watch it later on online and, and get on with it. But I think it's important for us to gather together, even virtually here, together and worship God. Jesus wants us to know God through the gathering of his people, and he wants us to know God through the worship of his people. Verse 46 says, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Place of worship is to be a place of honor. He is angered here because the gathering of God's people should honor God, and that's not what is happening. There's noise, and there's crowds, and there's deals being done, and there's there's mess everywhere, and, and there's everything happening, and it's distracting and troubling. See, the gathered people of God is... It's not our house. It's not our gathering. It's his. He is the head. He is the focus. He is the goal and he is the glory. As we do this, as we we share in in God's word through this way, and as we we gather, I, I, I pray constantly that what happens here doesn't bring me any glory as if it would in some way or or us any glory, but that no matter what we do, when we gather together or like this, that God has brought the greatest glory out of all. Imagine the scene here in the temple. Jerusalem is packed full of people, and many of them have come, and they they haven't brought their sacrifices with them because they know that they can buy what they need in the temple. And so there's people everywhere. It's crowded. This is in the outer court, the Gentile court of the temple, and there's people everywhere, and there's there's animals, and there's there's birds and goats and sheep and and stuff all over the place in in cages and, and tied up, and there's people over there who are are exchanging money so that you can have the right type of money for the temple tax and to pay what you need and deals are being done and people are making money and there's noise and it's just a place of distraction. There is not one thing about that which is going to lead people into an attitude of worship. It's just a constant distraction. It has turned into a place of selfish gain, of laziness and distraction. Church worship is for God. It is not for us. We gather to honor him. We gather to proclaim him. But when Jesus says this, and when he comes and he rebukes the people, he says, my house is a house of prayer. Why prayer? Why doesn't he say my house is a house of praise? Or uh, my house is a house of teaching? Because clearly, verse 47, it tells us that after this, every day, Jesus was in the temple teaching. 
This is what forms such a major part of worship, both in the temple and in churches. Why, why, why prayer? Why do you say my house should be a house of prayer and not praise or teaching or, or something else? Because prayer is what empowers it all. Prayer is at its heart an act of dependence. We gather together as an expression of our need for God. And that is what prayer is. Prayer is an expression of our need for God, our dependence on him. We gather and we pray because we need him. We need God. Without prayer, our songs are empty and our sermons are dead. We gather asking for God to teach us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to draw us closer. Jesus wants you to know God through the gathering of his people, through the worship of his people, and finally through the teaching of his people. We find in verse 47 that he teaches daily in the temple, teaching one another. Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple teaching and in the synagogues teaching. We get to know God by hearing his word, by taking it in deeply and regularly. We do that not just by preaching, which we need, but by our interaction, by living out God's word, by learning God's word from one another as we speak it to one another, as we we help each other learn it and understand it. We're learning who God is. And as we're learning God's word, as we're being taught, it is also on us to teach others, to make disciples. We've spent a lot of time last year talking about making disciples. That is, we're not trying to make converts for Jesus. We're trying to make genuine disciples of Jesus, not fans, but disciples. Jesus wants you to avoid judgment, and he wants you to know God. His mission, what he came to do, not just to die and rise again. That, that, that wasn't just a job to him. It wasn't just something he had to do. It was his passion. He sacrificed because he loves us. He wants us to know true and genuine peace, and he wants us to avoid judgment for sin, and he wants us to genuinely know him, not some God of our making. Because these are his passions, he's protective of the ways that he has given us to do that. Our passions need to be like Jesus. Is your heart broken right now? As you look on our city and see people desperately wanting peace, but rejecting the only way to it? Weep for our city, for our nation. Pray for it, for the world, and proclaim the gospel of peace. Do you feel the loss that comes with not being able to gather with your church? I do. Pray for when we will gather together again. Pray that when we do, We will be hungry for it. 
that we'll grow stronger through this and we will reach more with the gospel as we move through these unusual times. Let's have a word of prayer before we sing a song of reflection and response. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. I pray, dear God, that we have been encouraged by it, that your spirit has been able to take it, to use it within each of us. Dear God, as we gather in this way, it is a reminder of so many great things that we miss when we are together. Bind our hearts together and our lives. Dear God, as we look out on a world which desperately longs for peace, we pray that our lives would be shining lights of the peace that comes from God. People will be able to see through us. Not that we are not worried or not that we have no cares, but that we trust the one who is in control of all things. Praise you and thank you for these in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.